Good morning, Vertical Church. Well, my wife and I got married while we were both an undergrad, which means we were broke. We lived almost exclusively on canned tuna, except for Friday night, date night, which was, I, took, I, I treated my girl right. I gave her salmon, also from a can. We were so poor, and yet in another sense, we were rich because since we had no money, and as college students, we had no prospect of making any money in the coming uh, anytime soon, we just kind of lived with this present tense gratefulness for what we did have. Listen, you can be rich while having very little, and you can be poor while having very much. And today, the king is going to show us how. Open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. The book of Ecclesiastes is King Jesus, through King Solomon, lifting up the most common things we believe will give us meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction in life, and showing us that apart from Jesus, each of these things are utterly meaningless. So, so far in this series, he's lifted up partying. He's lifted up relationships. He's lifted up the American dream. He's lifted up politics. He's even lifted up religion. And he showed us how and why each of these things are empty and futile apart from Jesus. But today, the king is going to lift up our favorite false god, money. The big idea of the message this morning from the king's lips himself, money is meaningless without Jesus. One recent study revealed that 80% of people believe that they would be happier if they just made more money. And seven out of 10 people said their desire for money influences their daily decisions. Solomon, the human author of Ecclesiastes has more money than anyone else, and it's not even close. Economists estimate that in today's currency, he would be worth about $2.2 trillion. That means if you divided Solomon's worth in three, the top three wealthiest people to ever live would be Solomon, Solomon, and also Solomon. Solomon had more money than anyone ever. And so when he talks about money, Let's lean in as we are hearing someone more than anyone else who is not just a expert, the expert on the subject. But Ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 11 says the divine author of Ecclesiastes is Jesus. And Jesus talked about money more than any other single subject except the kingdom of God. 11 out of his 40 parables, more than 25% of his stories centered around the topic of wealth. And I think he spoke so much about money because he knew that it would hold so many of us away from him. He knew that you cannot serve both God and money, Matthew 6, 24. And he knew, listen, that most of us would try. And I think the reason why Jesus was able to live just so different, so free, was because King Jesus knew what King Solomon had to find out, that pursuing satisfaction in money is 
Havel. That word is going to bookend our passage this morning as the king gives us seven reasons why we won't find satisfaction in money and two places where satisfaction can actually be found. You guys are up for it? Ready to lean in? All right, Ecclesiastes chapter five, beginning in verse eight. This is what we got out of bed for. The Holy Spirit through Solomon to vertical church on this morning says this. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter for the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is the gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Does your Bible have a little footnote at the end of verse nine? See that there? If you follow that footnote down, it'll say something like, the meaning of this Hebrew verse is uncertain. Translation, we have no idea what this means. I, and I love that, man. There's a translation committee at some point who's like, we got to put something down. Let's just put something down and then put an asterisk that says, no clue, go pray about it. I, I love that. They actually do have a clue. As I consulted commentators, most scholars believe verses 8 and 9 are essentially saying this whole thing called life is essentially a pyramid scheme. They're saying that there's the poor down at the bottom and they're getting oppressed by someone. But that someone is getting oppressed by someone over them. And that someone is getting oppressed by someone over them. And it goes like that all the way to the top, even to the king. And the, the, the system is broken, and yet it's the only way to get cultivated fields. It's the only way society functions. This is the depressing reality of life under the sun. If you look around and you see people cheating one another, if you see people cannibalizing one another to capitalize off one another, if you see people uh, ripping each other off and stabbing each other in the back just to get ahead, guys, that's not something going wrong with the system. That is the system. That is life under the sun. It's the only way society works. And now in verse 10, the king zooms in from the system down to our hearts. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is, what's the word? Vanity. If you're taking notes, write this down. I will not be satisfied with money because I will never have enough. A reporter once asked Rockefeller, who in today's currency would be worth about $400 billion, how much money will be enough to which he famously responded, just a little more. God tells us, 1 Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So is money evil? No, let's be careful readers of, of the Bible. Verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Guys, it's, it's not wrong to have lots of money. It's wrong when money has lots of you. It's not a sin to have money, 
but it is a sin when money has you. And 1 Timothy 6 says the way money gets a hold of us is once we get it, we love it. And once we love it, we crave more of it. That's the cycle. You get it, love it. Once you love it, you crave it more and more. Like all disordered desires, love, the love of money is a monster. If you feed it, it will grow bigger and stronger. Just like lust. If you feed your lust, it's only going to grow bigger and stronger. Like anger. If you feed anger, it's only going to grow bigger and stronger. And if I feed greed, the love of money, that's only going to grow bigger and stronger. It's why the college grad that lands his first job is, you feel like you've won the lottery. Have you ever done this? Have you done this yet? It's like, you're going to pay me $23,000 every year? (laughs) And then you fast forward 15 years and they're making six figures, but they don't feel rich. They're like, well, on top of the house and the cars and the bills, and I I think I need to get a part-time job. What happened? The monster was fed and the monster grew. One time a reporter asked an NBA player, player who was holding out for a max contract, I think it was like 160 million guaranteed, why he was holding out. And he said, look, I just, I got to feed my kids. It's like, how many thousands of kids do you have? <laughs> he fed the monster and the monster grew. But we're all like this, right? Many of us are making now what we thought would have been more than enough 10, 20, 30 years ago. And, and how does it feel? Do you feel like Donald Duck just, you know, backstroking in cash? Or do you feel like the 80% of Americans who say, I think my life would be happier if I made just a little more? God brought each of us to church this morning to say, You will never be satisfied in money because you will never feel like you are making enough. Verse 11, the king also acknowledges this. When goods increase, here's what happens. They increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? The second reason Solomon gives for why money will never satisfy is because it it will attract people who don't really love me. Another translation of verse 11 is, the more you have, the more people will show up to spend it. Diggy told us, mo' money, what? Mo' problems. And Solomon identifies one of the first problems is that it attracts leeches. It attracts people who don't actually love you. They just love what you have. One of the greatest boxers ever, Floyd Money Mayweather. He's known for his entourage. And one time before a, fl- uh, a fight, he went to a car dealership, threw down a million dollars cash, and told everyone in his crew, pick, pick whatever car you want. And I just think, like, when he goes to bed that night, you know he's thinking, do any of these people like me? Or do they just like what I have? I read an article on Johnny Depp where the reporter went to Johnny Depp's house for a couple weeks and he wrote this article and he was so depressed because he said, everyone in Johnny Depp's life is in his life because they're on Johnny Depp's payroll. 
And yet you don't have to have that kind of money to experience what Solomon's talking about. As a pastor, it never fails to amaze me how whenever someone with even modest resources comes to the end of their life, how family just comes out of nowhere. Knives out. I saw one family break up over a grand piano. And Solomon's saying, guys, this is what money gets you. You work so hard for all of those years, for all that money, and in final analysis, your money is just the honey that attracts the flies. You work all, all, all those years fighting through sick days, missing birthdays, you lost a marriage or two, and all of that for what? For five or ten people around your deathbed who don't care about you. They just want a slice of the pie. Was it worth it? Because that's what your money will buy you. Verse 12. He says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Point three, I will not be satisfied with money because it will make me restless. Solomon, speaking from firsthand experience, says, in general, the more money you have, the more restless about money you become. He says, when you're not making a ton, you just have enough to eat, you go off to sleep, not a care in the world. You're good. But once you start having some resources, once you start making some money, what do I do with all this? Is it, is it FDIC insured and, and what's going on with the markets and, and did you see what's going on in China and what's happening with the oil and that's it, I'm going all in on FDX. Just anecdotally, I know a few people with money and they happen to be the same people I know who are most concerned about money. Maybe you saw a little bit of this in your parents. Maybe they, they made more than enough to live an average middle-class life, and yet dad just couldn't turn it off, right? Just always thinking about the next deal. How are we going to get a little more? What are we going to do with it? Solomon says, this is what money does to us. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. There's the phrase, that's a life apart from God. Riches were, underline this word, kept by their owner, to his hurt. Another reason we will not be satisfied with money is because it will hurt us. Do you see that word? To his hurt. If we're not careful, it will hurt us. Again, 1 Timothy 6. <clears throat> but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. I can't, I can't read that passage without thinking of the rich young ruler. You remember that guy? Rich young ruler, he was, he was doing all the right things. He's reading his Bible, he's serving at church, he's staying sexually pure. And Jesus is like, you're doing awesome now stop chasing money and start chasing me. And he can't do it. Because he loved money too much to leave it for Jesus. And so he left Jesus for money. 
God is saying to us in verse 13, if you keep it, if you won't let it go, if you just hoard it and hold on to it, it's going to hurt you. It's one of the reasons we give as God's people. Not because God needs money. Newsflash. We give because God loves you. And he doesn't want that idol to hurt you. Idols always turn around and devour the worshiper of the idol. So we're called to give. But verse 14, he says, And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Another reason we will not be satisfied with money is because we can lose it all in life. The bank can fail. The economy can collapse. You can make a bad investment. The U.S. dollar can fall through the floor. There can be a pyramid scheme or a thousand other unforeseen events that could make you lose it. Tracking inheritances, 60% of it will be spent by the second generation. And by the end of the third generation, over 90% of grandma and grandpa's money will all be gone. But let's say, let's say you do super well. Let's say NFTs make a comeback. Let's say your $20 worth of Bitcoin becomes $20 million. Let's say you just wisely budget and, and steward your resources well. And against all odds... You come to the end of your life and you have some money. You have some significant resources. Here's the worst part, verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Again, this is the central question of the book of Ecclesiastes. What do we get for this, you guys? What profit after going going that hard for that long? What do you actually get? Solomon says, you may lose all of your money in life. You will lose all of your money at death. That's why we won't be satisfied. I will lose it all at death. Steve Jobs was worth $10.2 billion the day he died. You know how much he has now? Not a cent. Tolstoy wrote a short story entitled, How Much Land Does a Man Need? And the story is about a content peasant farmer who says he needs just a little more land to be happy. And the devil overhears him and makes it his ambition to give him a little more land. And so the peasant farmer gets a little bit more, but he's not satisfied. And so he wants a little bit more. And so he gets a little bit more and then he wants a little bit more. Gets a little bit more, wants a little bit more. And the devil just keeps helping him acquire more and more. And this increasingly wealthy farmer repeatedly seeks to acquire more and more and more land. At the very end of the story, the man dies in his quest for more land. His servant buries him. And the story ends with this concluding sentence. Six feet from his head to his heels was all the land he needed. How much land does a man need? About six feet from his head to his heels. 
Again, the Spirit through Solomon is evaluating the meaning of something through the lens of death. And when we evaluate the value of money through the lens of death, we find money to be worthless, holding no value. So Solomon, Jesus through Solomon is saying, guys, why play the game then? Why would we live every waking hour grinding, going after it, pursuing more land, more money, more house, when we know at the end of this thing, 100 years from today, guaranteed, we won't have a cent. Verse 17, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. He's not describing the poor. He's describing the embarrassingly wealthy. All his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation. That's like mental anguish and sickness and anger. I will not be satisfied with money because it will make me miserable. Business Insider tracked 20 lottery winners. These are real people with real stories. Willie won $3.1 million dollars. But he lost his wife. His kid was charged for attempted murder on Willie. And today he's addicted to crack cocaine. Michael won $15 million. But he blew it all on prostitutes and parties. At the time of the article's publication, he was trying to get his job back from waste management. William won $16 million. He was sued by his ex-girlfriend. His brother hired a hitman to kill him. And in one year, he was $1 million in debt and today is living on food stamps. Billy Bob, of course his name is Billy Bob, right? I feel like if your name is Billy Bob, you've been predestined to hit the Mega Millions. That's just like a lottery name. Billy Bob. Billy Bob won $31 million. But he spent it all. He lost his marriage and committed suicide. And I know what we're thinking. Well, that one happened to me. And maybe you're right. Maybe you're better than those people. Maybe you're better than the celebs who have so much and yet are miserable. Maybe you're better than the millions of wealthy people who are suffering with depression and anxiety and broken marriages. Maybe you're wiser than King Solomon. Or maybe you're not. Maybe we're not. And maybe Solomon is right. Maybe more money is not the thing that will make our life happier. Maybe the desire for more money is the very thing keeping us from a happy life. Now in verse 18, the passage turns and the king tells us how to find satisfaction in life. This is what's called one of the carpe diem sections in the book of Ecclesiastes. And here's what Jesus says through Solomon to us. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. 
Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. Underline this. And to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. I will be satisfied when I fully enjoy God's gifts. That's what verses 18 through 20 are telling us. Solomon says our hearts will be occupied with joy. Doesn't that sound nice? Occupied with joy as we enjoy all the gifts that God has given us. And what's the greatest gift he's given us? Look at end of verse 19. This is the gift of God. Go back. What's the gift? To accept his lot. And to rejoice in his toil. Chesterton said there's two ways to become satisfied in life. Accumulate more or desire less. And God's saying option one is not an option. Only option two. You want to be satisfied in life? Then this is so radical, guys. This is so un-American. Then accept your lot. Say, this is the life God has given me. This is the day God has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. And this is the work God has given me. I will rejoice in it. What we're being told here by God himself is the way to be satisfied in life is to believe that you have enough today to be satisfied in life. At one time, the Apostle Paul was very wealthy, but later in life, he has given everything for the sake of Christ. He finds himself in a prison cell, and he heralds the same truth of Ecclesiastes 5.19. Philippians 4, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in every... In any circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Today, you know, we use that verse to score the touchdown, right? Get get some confidence to go crush the job interview and close the deal. And we use that verse to give us confidence. Hey, you can do anything through Christ who strengthens you. So go get more. And Paul's saying the exact opposite. You can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. So you don't need the touchdown. If you don't crush the the job interview, it's okay. If you don't close the deal, it's okay. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That is the secret of facing plenty and little. And do you know what happens, guys, when we retire from this incessant accumulation mindset? We become free to stop looking past what we actually have to the thing we don't have. And we can fully enjoy what God has actually given to us. That's what God is telling us to do this morning, guys. um, Looking past to the things you, you don't have but you want leaving that and saying, okay, this is what God has actually given to me. Now, 
Let me enjoy that fully. That is verses 18 through 20. Christians today have this idea that, that we're supposed to enjoy God, but I don't know how, I mean, we, we probably shouldn't enjoy stuff too much because we should be focused on God, right? Like don't, don't enjoy that steak dinner too much because you should really, like that could become an idol. You should really be focused on God. Hey, that's not just bad theology. That's the teaching of demons. 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. What's the teaching of demons? Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Hold up, guys. I I thought demons were always telling us to do things, like bad things. I thought they were saying, like, yeah, do it, like, lust, lie, do all that. Listen, that's only half their message. And because you're a Christian, you're probably very aware of that. And it's probably not the message they're, they're speaking into your ear. The message they're speaking into Christians' ears, it's more likely, hey, don't do that. Their other message is forbidding good things. Demons are real and they are trying to make you enjoy what you shouldn't enjoy. And they're trying to make you not enjoy what you should enjoy. Verse 4, for everything created by God. What things have been created by God? Everything. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. The way we defy the devil, the way we become satisfied in life is by fully enjoying everything good that God has given us. Guys, that is true wealth. This reality has led me to believe that I am the richest person alive. And I don't mean that in a hokey way, like a, like a wink, wink way. Guys, I sincerely believe that you are looking at the wealthiest person alive. Because God has given me these three little children called Haddon, McCray, and Afton. And let's say if Elon Musk came to me and said, how much are you going to need from McCray? What's it going to take for me to have Haddon? What's Afton going to cost? A million? I would literally laugh, laugh him out of that room. How about a hundred billion? How about I get my boys together? What if we get all the money? I would say, you're not even entering the universe of what my children are worth. Like you're not even scratching the surface. So what do you call the man who has three assets, each with a valuation of more money than the world? Call that man the richest man alive. Solomon is saying, guys, we make our own valuations. That woman you're married to is either worth something or worth everything. 
that little dingy apartment is either that little dingy apartment or your home. Everything you have is either something you got or something given to you by God himself. And how you answer those questions will determine your level of satisfaction in life. But maybe you say, eh, I want to keep playing the game. I want to go make a million bucks. I want to grind. I want to go after it. Then chapter 6 is a preview of your deathbed realization. Solomon says, There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is, what's the word, guys? Vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things... He also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in, what's the word? Vanity, and it goes in darkness. And in darkness, its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything. Yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to that one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is, that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? Circle this word. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which passes like a shadow? For who can tell man What will be after him under the sun? Notice, guys, the richest man to ever live. $2.2 trillion comes to the end of his life and he doesn't want something. He's longing for someone. See, he keeps using the word who. Solomon is longing for not something. He has everything. For someone to come and tell him about life beyond the sun. I will be satisfied when I fully enjoy that someone from beyond the sun. All of Solomon's disillusionment and discontentment in life drives him to longing for Jesus. And the same is true for ours. The reality that money never satisfies is not a defect in creation. It's a feature. God made it this way to drive us to the one who can and does satisfy the human heart. 
If you don't hear anything else, guys, hear this. Real relationship with Jesus provides what money promises, but never actually delivers. Only intimacy with Jesus actually provides the satisfaction that money promises, but always fails to ultimately deliver. What you, what you want from money, it's found only in Jesus. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. Money says, this is the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Money says, this is the pathway of life. This is where you can have fullness of joy and pleasures on pleasures on pleasures. And God brought you to church to say, today to say, no, that's only in the presence of Jesus, the real presence. That means, guys, mere mental assent to some theological propositions about Jesus, that will not satisfy you. That will probably only increase your vexation and anger. But a real relationship, living in in his presence, studying his love letters written to you, losing track of time in slow back and forth conversation with him, moving throughout your day in moment to moment enjoyment of the tangible nearness of the Son of God. Guys, that's the path of life. I said, I'm the richest man alive because of the valuation of my kids. But you, Christian, have Jesus. Jesus, again, not in a hokey sense, in a theologically rock-solid sense, Jesus makes every Christian the wealthiest person alive because Jesus is of infinite value. And through his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has given all of himself to you. So this week, fully enjoy God's gifts. Don't look past them. Look right at them and fully enjoy them. Fully enjoy God's son. Live in the tangible awareness of his nearness. And may God satisfy you every morning. And may you rejoice and be glad every single day. And I'll see you next Sunday. Let me pray.